Hello, and welcome to the CIPR Engage podcast. Celebrities in the headlines. Celebrity PR in the 1990s. This historical exploration forms part of the CIPR's 75th anniversary program. In this episode, our hosts and guests explore the dance between celebrities, their PR advisors and journalists before social media channels became all-powerful. They discuss some of the power tussles between PR practitioners and journalists and how those tussles were articulated in media deals. They consider this and more in the context of relationship management and commercial interests. And the discussion is brought up to date, comparing some of the differences between celebrity comms in the 1990s and those of today. Welcome to this Engage podcast by the CIPR, the Chartered Institute of Public Relations. This podcast is on the rise of spin, power and celebrity in the 1990s and explores the changing nature and influence of celebrities. This is part of a series celebrating 75 years of the professional body and exploring the history of the profession and practice. I'm delighted that we're joined by author, columnist, historian of film publicity and influential PR practitioner, Mark Bukowski. Mark, with his knowledge and history of the profession, particularly with his interest in film publicity and celebrity, is ideally placed to navigate our exploration of the 1990s. I notice his own PR consultancy, Bukowski, now has a strap line, we are a communications agency which truly understands the power of the crowd. Would a statement like this be relevant in the 1990s? We will find out. I'm also delighted to welcome Rob McGibbon, a journalist, celebrity interviewer and author. After writing for national newspapers since 1986, Rob has a unique insight into the workings of the media and a formidable network of high-level contacts. Alongside writing, Rob also currently works as a communication strategist for celebrities leading business figures and brands. I'm Mark Fillimore, your host for the podcast. I'm a former PR practitioner in the tech and corporate sectors, not celebrity. However, I then became an academic at the University of Greenwich, where I'm based. I've developed courses incorporating celebrity PR and film publicity PR with a particular focus on celebrity culture and the interest in celebrity by other social science disciplines. So let's start and perhaps, Mark, you could give us a sort of scene setting. What was the context of PR and comms in the 1990s? To understand the 90s, I guess one always has to think about the zeitgeist of the time. It was certainly the rise of celebrity as a brand. I I think that uh, the the day that um, Victoria Beckham, when she was asked about her ambition, when she was on a a junket with with the Spice Girls, she said that she wanted to be more famous than Purcell Automatic. (laughs) 
I think this was the beginning of the age where celebrities perceived that their their collateral, uh, their presence, could be exploited. That was a lot to do with the work of uh, Lynn Franks' agency at the time, with fashion, aligning celebrity endorsements, particularly outside of traditional fashion worlds, um, the rise of sports figures who were, who were generating a huge amount of attention at the time. And, and this was driven really by the aggressive nature of the tabloids, you know, and the Murdoch effect, particularly of, of publications like The Sun. And what was interesting to me, you know, trying to explain to young PR practitioners that, in fact, newspapers, you know, you know pre-digital, pre the rise of social media channels, had incredible reach. That was the mass reach you needed. While the television programs were across only four channels, there wasn't the splintering of broadcast, you know, Saturday night, TV had millions of eyeballs, and newspapers like The Sun and The Mail um, and even the broadsheets had phenomenal readership because that's how we collected our news. News wasn't free at the time. So all this made what I felt in the 90s when PR was changing was the commodification of celebrity that actually infiltrated not into the homes through the, the industrial strength of newspapers, but also the commercial value which you could derive from your presence across that media. And Rob, what's your perspective from journalism at the time? Well, in the late 80s, I was working as a news reporter on The Sun, so I wasn't directly involved in the celebrity market. But I, I saw certain stories hitting the papers at the time, which I would find out later had a dramatic impact on the connection between celebrities and PR. In 1987, The Sun did their big expose, which was meant to be an expose, of Elton John and Rent Boys, which collided into the libel action, which The Sun lost a year later. And um, I, I then joined The Sun in 1989 as a showbiz writer. And by then, the, the landscape had completely or was starting to change completely in terms of the connection with the tabloids and celebrities. There's a lot closer uh, collusion, which was necessitated by the fact that basically the sun was banned from contacting most celebrities at the time because of the Elton John fallout. So things really started to change in the late 80s, which obviously affected what was to come in the 90s. I think it's interesting to also talk about, about that time is the fact that I think the PR world was very benign. It wasn't very aggressive. In fact, there were, it was built on very cosy relationships. And as soon as celebrities were becoming news, hitting the front pages, then that, uh, that, that then changed into pretty aggressive tactics because that would bring eyeballs, that would bring, you know, readers um, to, to the papers. So th therefore, a lot of the old school, gentle um, uh, PR was actually upset by the new aggression that went into that. I, I remember a, um, a, a journalist calling me up one day about a client and saying to me, we don't like your client anymore, Mark. We're going to bring him down. Um, and, and, and that was a sort of uh, attacks that you were having to, to, to deal with. Uh, the, the, the other interesting thing was that the effect of the tabloidization of celebrity actually leached into the broadsheets. And I think that was a lot to do with uh, Julie Birchall um, and uh, Toby Young's publication, Modern Times, which had a more intellectual 
um, point of view on what had been really tabloid culture. So in terms of pop and music, you know, music, um, you know, film, they sort of brought a sort of quasi-academic approach. And, and that still had some effect from the old inkies like the New Music Express, which by then had trained people like Birchall and thrown like Sir Tony Parsons into the mainstream. So I think when the broadsheets started putting what I would call tabloid celebrities, you know, who had the aesthetic looks to make the front page of the Telegraph, I could see a profound change coming then that one had to really you know, be, be, be quite, um, uh, quite cute about how deals were struck and how this became a much more uh, transactional uh, relationship between the power that you had representing people that would get into the papers uh, as opposed to sort of benignly just facilitating a junket or an interview. So, I mean, just looking at how celebrity was sort of changing uh, in this time, because I think one of the things looking at your um, book, Mark, about um, uh, Hollywood, the, the, the sort of culture of celebrity there, it was a very controlled one. And I think uh, what's coming through in both your descriptions is this was a very sort of... Um, aggressive culture in some ways, but also perhaps was it one that, as you said in your book, that there weren't enough uh, enough major celebrities? So, of course, we're seeing really the growth of micro-celebrities, reality TV. And, and Rob, would you sort of say that um, uh, the, the newspapers were really dis- deciding who is a sort of celebrity or were they sort of generating this sort of particular focus because of course there was such a demand from their readership for coverage of celebrities i did several big interviews in the sun that could only have happened with copy approval and there's been certain ramifications from that because their you know pr has started or certainly did back then get the upper hand and i'm sure mark has had experience of this where you know if you've got the right celebrity that has um a big appeal to the newspapers, you can end up sort of running the show a bit more than if it's just someone desperate to get in a paper. Yeah. I mean, Mark, it might be worth, what's your perspective on copy approval? It might be worth giving an overview of what copy approval means. Um, well, j- just before I go into copy approval, which is, <laughs> which is, uh, we could, we could do an entire podcast on copy approval <laughs> and the rules for copy approval. Um, but, uh, it's about control. Going back uh, to to what Rob said there, and, and, and touching on your introduction, the studio system that existed in Hollywood um, between roughly the end of the thirties right the way through until you know post war is that the commodity was the celebrity, the big star that a studio owned. They they owned that person, uh, and therefore um, they could run that person's life. It was a a commercial transaction, and therefore protecting those from negative publicity um, and therefore the power that the studio publicists had over keeping the negative stories out was a commercial decision because they wanted to keep their star fresh so they were popular in middle of America. What, what happened as the studio system broke up and the rise of TV, um, particularly in the 60s and in the 70s, um, was that the, 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 the American media um, became incredibly, were, were terrified of British tabloids. 
and therefore there were less and less access to celebrities um, without a deal. Um, then we saw towards the end of the 90s a rise of what I call the reality show stars, which was a very cheap commodity exploited by the likes of, of, of OK, particularly um, in, in extending the life of these. So therefore you had to do deals. And the only, you know, when um, an interview um, took place, you were then left to the interpretation of that journalist to your clients in that room. And if you if 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 that journalist, going back to what Rob said, didn't like or was wound up or felt that they could use the interview to generate their own celebrity by taking the interview as a scalp, um, that we, we lost control. So therefore, if it was an A-list celebrity um, who could actually put readership on a newspaper, then the deal changed because the trust was lost by that aggression that happened in the late 80s, early 90s. So publicists had to strike a deal. So copy approval means that you get to see and you can affect any changes to that interview. It started off by by asking for accuracy. The fact that, you know, whatever was said in an interview, we wanted to double check and make sure uh, that, that it wasn't spun or nuanced in a certain way. So then you rose to sort of say, no, that isn't working. I want to see the interview. And sometimes copy approval could mean veto. Rarely, but sometimes. And of course, as soon as copy approval came into play, um, it was a very... It was a terrible um, um, sort of set, set of conflicts between um, the you know the the, the two professions, um, and it, it is more prevalent now. And I argue that that is perhaps why you get vanilla inane interviews um, that biographical uh, that that actually do not connect with the audience. I used to say to my clients, we've always got to add a little bit of grit in the oyster. You've got to have some sort of remark or story that you throw in that would generate news interest because for me as a publicist I wanted to see my clients off the cultural pages off the celebrity pages off the off the sort of uh, and I wanted them to make news I wanted them to be on the front page and to do that then you had to you know come up with a strategy work with a client and actually throw something in that would actually be powerful but copy approval which is even more prevalent today is some sense an idea of the hierarchy that the publicist has control and of course you know there are there are occasions where that has been agreed and uh, are not uh, are not fulfilled um, and of course we are seeing blacklists where uh, particularly american publicity um, companies will actually not allow a certain title. There are still, uh, I was working with an A-list celebrity uh, a couple of weeks ago and I was dumbfounded that he refused to speak to any Murdoch-owned press. And I haven't heard that for a while. And that's because now celebrities have their control over their own information channels, Instagram in particular, where they can curate their story um, to their fans. That's a, that's a very interesting insight for sort of in modern practice. But Rob, sort of coming back to you, um, did you have experience of sort of copy approval, but sort of take it further on in terms of relationships you found dealing with c celebrity PR practitioners? What was your experience in the 1990s? 
I've been in celebrity journalism since 1988. So I've worked with hundreds and hundreds of PRs and hundreds of celebrities. PR journalism and newspapers is a very strange dance. And it's all about finding a way to move comfortably together. Uh, in terms of copy approval, I haven't done much of it. Sometimes there's no alternative. But the way I've always worked is from a position of trust. And the trust is with me and the celebrity. Celebrity, I work with direct or through the PR, who I know well, that that begins and ends with a position of trust. If I do an interview, number one, I'm not going to claim a scalp, which is what Mark referred to, because then the door closes. As a freelance, there's no point. There's probably... It's hardly one celebrity I've interviewed over the years I don't think I could probably get to again. You know, I haven't slammed those doors shut. So it's about creating a working situation based on trust. And, you know, if you have that trust, you don't really need to give copy approval. You know, I had a, a weekly interview column in the Daily Mail for seven and a half years, 370 columns. I think I gave copy approval to maybe two or three people in that whole time, which, you know, that's a very small fraction of people. So it's just about finding a position of trust and working together. The, the journalists and the PRs, you know, we're all trying to get to the same place. Yeah. So just sort of looking ahead in terms of the sort of negotiating skills in terms of working with with media, what, what sort of insights would you have about uh, how that worked in the 1990s uh, perhaps in in terms of how it is different today? Well, I have an expression um, which I use all the time, uh, which is everything is different, everything's the same. It, it is what Rob touched on there. It is about relationships. It's about strategy. It's about consideration. It's about understanding the media that you work in and understanding people. And it is building up trust through relationships. And that doesn't change, as don't think that's ever changed at all. If you understand and you're talking to people and you you have a relationship with senior editors, you know, columnists, even interviewers, you know what they like. You spent time with them. The difficulty that we have here, and I'm standing like a slight dinosaur now, that the speed of communication demands people to negotiate in text message. I refuse to do that. If a journalist rings me up and wants to do something, or other, I said, here is my number, call me. I have to speak to them, have to understand them. That could be the same as an influencer. That could be the same as someone running an influential you know, um, Instagram site or whatever it is. TikTok, I need to speak to them. I need to understand who they are as a human. And that never changes. It's about building relationships with people over a time. I am dealing with something at the moment today, and I'm dealing with someone I dealt with when I was 20 years old, um, who was then on a local newspaper, who is now sitting in a very senior role in a broadsheet newspaper. And he and I will always break the conversation up you know, with it. And I try and see him as regularly as I, I, I possibly can with all my contacts. And time is, is very precious, but it's about building relationships. And the more technology and publicists and PR people have been the first to embrace technology, whether it was using the telegram, whether it was a dot matrix printer, whether it was a mail merge, whether it was a computer, whether it was 
social, uh, whether it's AI or ChatGPT now, it's about how you use these tools to enhance your ability, not replace common sense, strategy, experience, and more important, building those relationships. Because the people you deal with today are going to be someone who perhaps will go on to other things. Now, we're seeing the disintegration of, of, of what Rob and I have grown up with that no longer has the impact that it once did. Speak um, for yourself. You know, <laughs> it does. I have plenty of impact. Thanks, Mark. No, you know what I mean. I mean, come on. Come on, Rob. We, we can argue here for hours. You know, we're not, we're not, a, a story in the sun is not making the same impact as it did um, when we were, you know, when it was the height of its powers. It's a different type of impact and you have to bring in different elements to ensure that you turbocharge your message or you control it or deal with the crisis. But the, 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 the point is it will always come down to those issues and that the way you behave, um, the way that you, you help people, because as a publicist, you're enabling. You are, you are there as a conduit. And also the way that you have a sensible relationship with your clients and whether or not you can actually deliver. You know, I once, once described the work as, as protecting my clients from doing the really stupid things um, because, you know, now we're seeing many mistakes are driven not only by inexperienced practitioners in the business, but allowing celebrities to be unguarded and doing something off the top of a bat and whatever. So through it, the conciliary, the person that's been close to the client has to earn that trust with the people they're dealing with on the other side of the fence. It's a two-way street, and it, 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 it can be lost in an instant um, by doing something either that is duplicious, stupid, um, self-serving, or lying, because one has to find a balance, particularly when a journalist, you know, is coming at a celebrity, you know, to be able to deliver back to that celebrity and try and get them to understand what the crisis that they face, because there's a lot of people that surround celebrities who are on a percentage and therefore, if their client is still making lots of money, you know, they're taking a high percentage. And they're the first people to desert a celebrity when it no longer can provide the income from that percentage. So therefore, there's a lot of people who will allow celebrities, and you know, I'm, I'm not saying anything, but we can see certain people in power at the moment who, who um, perhaps need sort of guidance because there are plenty of bones bleached on the highway of celebrity for these, 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 these carcasses that have actually been devoured because of their own stupidity. Okay, looking at the press, looking at media, looking at PR as sort of gatekeepers. Did you sense any change in power of the gatekeeping role of the media during the 1990s, you know, from the start to the sort of finish? And any perspectives from your position? Yeah, to reinforce what Mark said, it's all about personal relationships and trust, as I mentioned earlier. But also, I think there has to be a degree of perspective. PRs and journalists dealing in the showbiz celebrity world you know, please just keep perspective. Sometimes you get into heated arguments about this, that and the other. We're dealing with a celebrity talking about a product, whether it's an album, a tour or a book. You know, got to, you've got to keep perspective. And I say that to PRs quite often if they get a little bit fussy about what we talk about, what we don't talk about. I just say, look, I'm going to go there and do an interview. 
just calm down, keep perspective. I'm not going to stitch anyone up. But would you, I mean, Rob, what's interesting is you've been a writer of a number of celebrity books. Did that, uh, did that really sort of start in the 1990s? Uh, and is that perhaps an indication of of how celebrity culture was spreading into other forms of culture, such as printed books? Well, the celebrity autobiography has been around, you know, forever. Um, I started doing it simply because I had a couple of really hot ideas that I wanted to do. So I left The Sun to do a book on New Kids on the Block, which was a, a massive international success. And that put me on that road. And basically, I wanted to get a career in publishing and writing books. And... In terms of the PR involvement, books aren't really relevant, but in terms of newspapers and media, you know, PRs are ever present by the nature of protecting and advising their clients. Um, I know, Mark, you want to talk about the 90s. I'm trying to really work out what really changed. And I, I suppose the key thing, and Mark touched on this, the key thing that's really different now from the 90s is that a celebrity does have access to correct the record whatever's gone on through social media, or in fact, to guide the narrative through social media. What I've noticed lately, and the David Beckham Netflix series brings us right up to date, is there you have the new way of doing PR in the most glorious, ridiculous fashion. Because this Netflix documentary, which I watched the first episode nearly the other night, my goodness, that is one long PR fest. Yeah, from all the celebrities that he reels out, you know, there's no one asking any tough questions or inquiring as to what really went on at a certain time. So there you go. There's a living, yeah. a living embodiment of PR on a grand scale for a celebrity. Yeah, yeah. The the power of streaming media, and and certainly, of course, um, I know Formula One uh, felt that their involvement with Netflix made a huge impact on the US market and and the popularity of Formula One now in the US. Yeah. Um, what I um, one thing we ought to just sort of cover because, of course, in the nineteen nineties, a lot of discussion about phone hacking, and I'm assuming that phone hacking uh, was particularly focused in the sort of celebrity area. And I just wondered, Rob, uh, what's your sort of perception on it, looking back now? It's a bizarre one. I mean, it's not, nothing that I was involved in, obviously, because I sit down with celebrities and interview them face-to-face or on the phone. Well, it's essentially a news and a gossip column operation initially, I believe. I don't know, it's such a big subject. I mean, I think I think from my perspective, it's, it's a, it was a commercial thing, you know, to a certain extent. Technology comes in um, and there's a, there's a cynical and an illegal way of bypassing the publicist. Uh, bypassing relationships, bypassing the expense account. You no longer do you have to go the long route to actually get a story. And also it was a rise of what I call petty publicists, um, particularly Americans who who were, you know, not confronting the difficult moment, but just being obstructive. And uh, when you set up obstacles, you know, newspapers at the time were ingenious, I mean, in the dark way to find a way around that, you know, to find a way of actually getting past the barriers that existed because it became much more industrialised there in terms of the way that sort of celebrities were harvested, the fact that you couldn't get an A-list, and there was a lot of stories purported were absolute 
you know, fake. Um, and I think newspapers are sick and tired that they couldn't get at the real stories. What we've seen since then justifiably is is a justice that many people have received because many lives were was destroyed um, by the stress of, of, of what they went through. Um, Rob touches on the um, on the Beckham documentary on Netflix, and I think what's quite interesting was the, you know, the, the level of hate that existed for David Beckham at the time because of um, because of what happened in the uh, in the World Cup in France. But I think it was a a way of of undermining the power of PR, which was growing then. And, and going back to the other point uh, of, of Rob is that there were just some really bad. And there still is some very bad practitioners in the craft who will not do the difficult thing, which is actually having a sensible conversation with their client and actually being experienced enough to actually say, come on, let's have a conversation about this. This, this, this is a reality. Okay. Um, w- one of the things, just picking up on celebrity, and I think, Mark, you sort of raised it early on, but I just wondered, Rob, your perception as a sort of journalist is colleagues at Greenwich have highlighted that there was a lot more uh, use of celebrity associated with brands and the whole, what we would call uh, influencer marketing now. And I just sort of wondered Rob, if you sort of were aware of that in your celebrity stories, perhaps it was coming to you via via the sort of brand PR people, you know, who were sort of leading the story, the sort of thing that's very common now, but I believe was more innovative in its time in the 1990s. I remember I was sent up to Glen Eagles in Scotland to interview Stephen Hendry, the snooker player for Sunday magazine, which was the supplement of... um, uh, the news of the world at the time. I did the interview, took a photographer up there, and I just remembered that the agent, not the PR, but the agent absolutely freaked out when the magazine came out because the magazine had airbrushed out the, the logo on his T-shirt. And, of course, what we didn't know, and this comes back to the point Mark mentioned about communicating, what we didn't know, the magazine, is that he'd done a deal with the with the um, manufacturer of the T-shirt, the, what the sports brand, to be on the cover of Sunday magazine. And of course, it all the whole thing from the uh, agent's point of view collapsed because they didn't get the PR they wanted. Which brings me on to, I think, the best takeaway from this sort of conversation is if you're a PR, you've got, it's all about communication and trust. So you've got to talk to your client with absolute sort of, be totally frank with them what you can and can't do. And also communicate with the journalist. You know, if you're straight talking with a journalist, he will be straight with you. And I just think it really comes down to that. I've survived in the business by being straight with people, mm. being honest. You know, so yeah. you've got to have those frank conversations. Yeah. I do know a manager of a big influencer-run agency, and um, the deals they do are, are quite incredible, quite incredible. No, I, th- I think that's it's down to um, the role of which um, newspapers – and their online titles now are dependent on advertising because in in the old days it was straight down um, big advertising campaigns around brand beard being whatever the household good or a car or whatever. Um, Now, you know, they have to integrate that because advertising 
you know, just does not have the same impact. So, you know, there's, there's, you know, the, the idea that once the advertising department was separated um, from the editorial department, um, there's much more integration now. And that was beginning to happen in, 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 in what we used to call advertorials um, in magazines were, were starting to slip into newspapers. And of course, you know, beer brands particularly, um, and uh, also tech companies uh, were dealing were dealing with celebrity endorsements. And if that part of the deal would be to um, promote the brand, that might be an interview. And sometimes that could be something as sort of inane as a sort of plug at the end of it, or could be integrated into the piece. So I think it's it's a blurring of those lines that started to happen then that accelerated through the noughties and are prevalent today in, in terms of how clever um, you know the, the 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 type of uh, deal that can be done across marketing uh, and advertising within a paper yeah. um, or a magazine or a yeah. website. Now, what I want to do is is really uh, look forward or look back and sort of see what what lessons are there for journalism and also for sort of for celebrity journalism, celebrity PR from the 1990s in terms of current practice. So, Rob, give us your sort of view in terms of celebrity journalism now. What would your take be, Rob, on what lessons are there from the 1990s for current day PR practitioners? See, the, the 90s, Mark, were in terms of, say, as a freelance journalist, were the heydays. You know, they, I, I had so much work. There were so many options. You had f- newspapers that are four times the size they are today. Yeah. Many, many spreads every day. So there was a lot to go for, a lot of money to be earned. Uh, it's a completely different landscape now. Um, in terms of the lessons, it's just that everything is spread so much more thinly now. In, in the, the day when the cover on one magazine, then a spread in a newspaper would do the PR with a bit, a few bits on radio is long gone. Everything is spread out. It's so spread out. You might be able to build something from a piece in the FT or the Times and then one tabloid, and then you've got to do all the social media. So in terms of the lessons, I think you've just got to be nimble. You've got to be ready to work across all platforms. I think you've got to be more inventive. You know, you've got to be able to use... Instagram and Twitter, as well as you can use the Sun or the Daily Mail or Sunday Times magazine. You've got to be nimble and you've got to be open-minded. I think you've really got to be, um, you've got to just be ready to take on new avenues of challenge. You know, as a journalist now, as a freelance challenge, uh, as a freelancer now, I have to be across so many different things to make something work. And you've got to, you know, it's laughable, Mark and I talk about it because we are from a certain era, but you have to move for the times or you will die. Yeah. You will. I know so many freelancers that are no longer in business. They've given up. Yeah. Because all they you know, could do in the back, back in the day was, you know, a TV listings magazine. Yeah. Now, those guys don't pay anymore. So that's finished. Yeah. So I'd say you've got to be nimble as a PR. You've got to be open minded and, you know, move with the times. Great. And, and Mark, what's your take? Uh, my, my, my take is, again, nothing really changes. The medium and the way we use the various channels to communicate has changed. And therefore, you, as Rob said, you have to integrate every aspect. It has to be um, 
not just a single channel focus, but actually how you're going to strategize each of those um, of those channels to integrate. The, the thing now is you've always had to be inventive. You've always had to be creative, really, to be truly successful. Um, you, but more than anything else, it is the speed of which things work at now, um, which leaves you sometimes so behind the crowd. I always believe that the crowd is where we had to communicate to. But the thing is, we also have to remember how quickly things dissipate. In the old days, things hung around for quite a long time that you could bathe in the success of your campaign for some weeks. No longer. It's gone the next day. Um, you, you have to find a way of elongating your message having action upon action upon action because the great unwashed, the masses, the crowd, the herd, you know, have a long-term amnesia around issues and a short-term attention span. We are just being funneled with messages and ideas and memes and trends all the time. So how do you raise your head above that noise and create a profound signal that generates connection and arcs all those different channels into understanding what your client wants to communicate? Great. Well, thanks very much, Mark. Thanks very much, Rob. Um, I think we've had uh, some very interesting insights for uh, a very important period of time, both for uh, media and for PR in terms of the 1990s. Um, and I'd like to thank, as I say, both Mark and Rob very much for their insights about this. I'd also like to thank the CIPR, uh, and I would like to thank uh, all the listeners. Thanks very much. Thank you for listening to our CIPR Engage podcast, Celebrities in the Headlines, Celebrity PR in the 1990s. And we'd love to hear your thoughts on what you've heard. You can add to the discussion by sharing your ideas on LinkedIn or X, formerly Twitter, using the hashtag Engage. And we'll be back very soon with another episode of the CIPR Engage podcast.